0: I think there's no reason why anyone can't have fun and why that should be a barrier. Social work should be no different yeah. either. I think I feel that we um we, we talk about that self care, making sure that we're having fun and being happy as well. Yeah. You know, and I think we oh yeah, we really did party. <laughs>
1: This episode of the Social Work Tutor Podcast, where I am joined by Greg Reardon. Greg, my friend, what our listeners probably will not know, uh, definitely will not know, is just how long I have teased you with the idea of coming on the podcast (laughs) or doing a blog or something. (laughs) It's been about two years we've been discussing this, my friend, hasn't it? It's been a while. It's
0: been a a, a long time. You've literally, like, teased me and (laughs) sent me little emails and now I'm finally here.
1: (laughs) Oh, yes. The the, the long, slow, steady uh, teasing approach. But finally... Finally, um, we've got you, we've got ourselves together on the show. Anyway, um, with that introduction, my friend, I'll hand over to you. Would you like to tell the social work world a little bit about yourself and introduce yourself to our listeners?
0: Oh, well, what a pleasure to be here. Um, I mean, my name is Greg Reardon and I am a social worker and I have been in social work since 2014. I graduated from the University of Northampton. I've, since the beginning of my career, I have practiced in child protection. Um, Yeah, and I've been doing that ever since. And I practiced in the UK for about five years, and now I'm in Australia, in Victoria, and I am talking on Wawarong country, which is around around, uh, the Geelong Palencia.
1: Way. Nice, nice. Well, you can tell us all about that later, my friend, because I have—I've heard of Victoria, but the other places I am blissfully ignorant to. Uh, we do have a—we a, a, do have a large um, Australian audience behind uh, the UK and America. Most of our listeners come from America. Uh, second biggest market is the UK. And the third um, most popular country to follow um, the podcast is Australia. So it's good because we had Ange Martin a couple of weeks ago Mm -hmm. on the podcast, um, an Australian social worker. She spoke a lot about working in private practice and DBT. And we're following that up with yourself, my friend. So more than welcome to be on the show at last. Finally, (laughs) I've got you. I've got you here, my friend. I've got you. such is customary when we have our guests on the show i always like to ask people a little bit about what attracted them to social work how did you become a social worker so i'm going to do the same with you my friend and follow suit what what first turned you on to the idea of being a social worker how did you hear about our profession And what was the driving factor behind you deciding to dedicate your life to the service of others as a child protection social worker?
0: Well, I think it really began when I was at school. Um, So when I was about 15, 16 years of age, I always knew that I wanted to go into the helping profession. I, I actually really struggled at school um, I had some fantastic teachers, and I had some um, some very supportive uh, education staff. But I could not really find like my, my niche in like normal academic subjects, really. Um, so when I went to college, I um, undertook. Uh, sociology for the first time. And I literally fell in love Mm. um, with sociology. Um, My lecturer was absolutely amazing. And but I always knew that I wanted to work with people um, in some way, form or another. And they did a counselling course um, on you know at college and that's when I first kind of dipped my toe into the helping profession and when I was looking at for university degrees one of the things that they really wanted um, was um, experience you know like voluntary experience yeah. of some kind um, so and I felt kind of a bit of a phony really so I went down to our local kind of volunteer center Mm-hmm. Um, which was basically just a referral center where you would go and get volunteer volunteer experience
1: yeah
0: and they placed me in the local contact center
1: <laughs> and i was only 16 years of age i don't want wow. to be there <laughs> wow. how did you find that because obviously it, c- contact centers you, uh, that that's the highest end of social work because you are working with and you are supporting families at some of the most distressing points in their life who, who are separated mm-hmm. from the children, who are only seeing the children for short periods of yeah. time, maybe two or three times a week for one or two mm-hmm. hours at a time. They are most likely going through court proceedings at that time, certainly under assessment, being watched by social workers and so on. So what was it like being thrown into that environment at 16? Oh
0: i was totally ambivalent at the time probably what was going on being like the tender age of 16 years of age (laughs) i honestly believed that you know um, parents were just bringing their children there because Mm. they just couldn't agree on you know when to see uh, their child, particularly, yeah. and in some cases that was true. Yes. Um, but in a lot of in a lot of cases, there was a lot going on behind the scenes. Um, but I, I think I generally looked older and acted more mature um, for my age at the time. Um, and you know these parents would have really. Um, you know, difficult conversations with you and I don't even mm. think that they realised at the time that I was only 16 years of age <laughs> and a volunteer. <laughs> but it was really good fun. I mean, in in terms of I had some really great uh, volunteer colleagues and it was through the local, um, you know, the, their local church at the time. Yeah. Um, and it was really, you know, it was really, you know, gave me some very valuable experience with people very early on in my life, because I think you know, as a as a as a teenager, you kind of feel you know, ah, oh, everything's going to be okay, everything's going to pan out uh, uh, all right in adulthood. Yeah. So I think it really grounded me as a as a as a young person. Um, that. People do have challenges along their way, even in adulthood, really. And I've really got a drive of just, you know, wanting to learn more and refine my skills of my, you know, speaking to people and adults and just listening to their um their difficult scenarios as well, what they're in. So that was kind of my real first kind of um, experience of being in a social work um, field or situation, really.
1: And that's a rare and valuable insight, Greg. You know, there there aren't many people at 16 uh, working in contact centres and getting put into that position. So it's... You know, it's a good thing that that actually, you know, turned you onto the profession because I can imagine for many people that surely that surely could have perhaps pushed them away from social work, could it not?
0: Oh, absolutely, because there was so many times where things got um, a little bit heated, mm. and it can be quite. Um, you know quite scary really yeah. being in that kind of environment and it's quite intense and there's a lot of emotion um within contact centers but i feel like i had very you know supportive team leaders and volunteers and also like social workers who um you know volunteered their time on the mm. weekend to um, undertake um contact work as well at this particular center um, I, I feel it really you know put me in good stead for um what, what was to come really um when i was going to apply for my social work degree because a lot i think a lot of um you know courses and i remember reading courses and um, from various universities um, oh, needing to have at least two years' experience yeah. in some kind of profession. And as, as a 16 to 18-year-old, when you've been in full-time education since the age of five where do you get that experience, yes. really? So it, it, I've really made it my mission <laughs> to go, oh, I really want to do this. And there was a lot of ums and ahs when I was at the volunteer uh, recruitment centre, like, oh, you you really want to do this? Wow. Um, and I was like, yeah, I really do, because I need it um, for my, um, you know, when I go in for my interview at university, mm-hmm. I at least need some experience to go in with so that's kind of like my first step into social work.
1: Amazing what what, what a background and from all, all the people I've spoken to um, in social work and on the podcast and doing interviews and so on I've never spoken to somebody who had such a route that was doing that work at 16 so incredibly rare my friend incredibly rare that you've taken that background and, and that route into social work. Tell me a little bit about university, and, and the reason I'm, I'm going uh, to say this right now. The reason I'm the reason I'm so keen to find out about Northampton University is I um I lived in Northampton for six months about three years ago. I worked for the local authority down there as a signs of safety sort of expert. Went down to help them embed a new model being signs of safety trained so I know Northampton quite well my friends so it's it's interesting you went to university there because (laughs) I would walk past the university halls of residence that were right next to where the council was based from where I was living on a daily basis so um, what was the University of Northampton like?
0: I, do you know what? At the, at the beginning, like right at the beginning, and I can all, almost remember it as like yesterday, because I never believed that I thought I could get into university.
1: Yeah.
0: I was a, a not an underachiever, but I just never thought that I would get there. So I was literally pinching myself when I got the, you know, the, the conditional offer to nice. go to go to university. And I, for the first few months, it was very clear Um, that I I was struggling at the time because it is a massive step up from college to university level. But I had such fantastic le- lecturers and you know they were just so warm and mm. you know just so welcoming as well um it was just such a, a an amazing experience that I had at university I wish I, I wish I could go back and nice. do it all over again um because even at the age of you know going into it at 19 years of age, you know, social work is a very different kind of course yeah. compared to um, a lot of other courses out there because obviously there's all the the, the all the written work and all the placements. And, you know, I just had a real ball there as well. Yeah. And I had a fantastic group of friends as well. We were quite a small cohort as well of, um, of individuals. There was only about... Um, probably about 50 or 60 of us at the start. And then it kind of dwindled down to about 40 or um, probably in the high 30s in the end. There is a high
1: dropout rate, isn't there? Social work courses tend to have quite a high dropout rate because I experienced that myself. And most people I speak to, whether they are students or academics, We'll always talk about a 10 to 20% dropout rate. What were some of the reasons that people were dropping out? You know, I mean, obviously don't share any names, my friend. I don't want you to be getting in trouble or get out of sharing somebody else's story. (laughs) It's an interesting point you make there. Why do you think so many people drop out of university social work courses?
0: I think there's a variety of different reasons, you know, where I guess the realities of social work really do set in, especially in around your, the back end of your second year and your third year as well, where they start talking about the realities of the job as well where it concerns resources or you know difficulties um, with funding etc and I think you know you go into this job wanting to make a change even if it's a small change you know I think a lot of um, students and I remember myself as a young student social worker going as long as I can help or support one person in my career, I will be happy in my career. And I think sometimes people may feel a little bit disheartened um, that they might not be able to achieve that yeah. goal, really, given where they're, you know the challenges um, that face them in the in, in reality as well.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting point that I think you, you get to a point in your career, some people will achieve it during their education at university, some people mm-hmm. will achieve it during the job itself when they have their first professional position. You get to a point when you realise that you cannot be the social worker that you want to be and instead you have to fit within the resources that you're given and that can be incredibly soul-crushing it can be incredibly hard to have that existential crisis and to realize actually the kind of help that I want to offer people isn't realistic when I have 30 children or adults Mm -hmm. to support when I am only paid for 37 hours when I've got commitments in my personal life when I've already got set budgets Mm -hmm. when I've got certain deadlines and it can be a difficult one can't it to get to that point when you realize (laughs) sadly even though we would all like to be needs led in reality you kind of have to be resource led and yeah I guess some people if you, you you some people who experience that at university and get that your feeling that actually this isn't the job that I thought it would be, um, yeah, you can see why people would sort of drop out at that point. What, I, what was it like to be a teenager studying social work? And I ask many people, we have many people such as yourself, Greg, who come on the show and one of my podcast co-hosts who does the show regularly with me, Tilly. She started her social work journey as a teenager too. How do you balance that social life as of a, as a teenager and freshers week and freshers year and wanting to go out and enjoy yourself. With the commitments of social work, the reason I ask this is I, I had two stints at university. First, time I went to university. I didn't study social work and I... Uh, basically studied social life my degree was something else but essentially <laughs> I dedicated myself to drinking partying and chasing young pretty girls that was my social work education <laughs> that was my education first time around to be honest it was like uh I was living a life like Van Wilder party liaison and something like that it wasn't it wasn't it, it wasn't conducive to education whereas I did go back university as a mature student in my 20s and life was very different for me there because I had commitments and so on so do you feel you were able to still have that university experience of the social life meeting new people can could you balance that with the commitments of a professional accredited course that led you to be a social worker were you able to do both
0: it's really funny because I think absolutely because you you know the people in social work are I think they're the best party people as well (laughs) (laughs) don't get me wrong I I had some like a a lot of our cohort well there was a a group of us who was in our you know our teenage years and there were people in their early and late 20s, but then there were also people in their, you know, their 30s, their 40s, their 50s as well, and they just loved it, you know, (laughs) know, just going out and having fun and, you know. No, I don't think you can. I think you can have both, I think, especially in your first year as well. Um, You know, I think, you know, people... Even when you do the job, you always need that time to let your hair down, really. You know, I kind of call it self-care, personally, but...
1: (laughs) (laughs) I know, I like it, my friend.
0: But absolutely, I think you can. I think there's no reason why anyone can't have fun and why that should be a barrier. Social work should be no different either. I I feel that we... Um, we, we talk about that self-care, making sure that we're having fun and being happy as well. Yeah. You know, and I think we, oh, yeah, we really did party. And I, I you know, had some great uni friends and, you know, had some amazing colleagues there. And I just thought it was the most amazing, fabulous time that I had. And also when the, when the work... You know, when it was university work or group work that we had mm-hmm. to do at university, we really did crack down as well. Nice. We really did work hard. You know but we also we played hard as well because we deserved it.
1: <laughs> well, well, Greg, my friend, that wanting to get you in too much trouble, I am not going to ask for any stories of <laughs> debauchery because you know what happens at Northampton stays in Northampton, okay? So we will we will leave it on that one, my friend. Um <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about your early forays into social work then because then, then we'll get on to where you are now and you you moved to Australia and um, the sort of main thrust of what we're going to discuss today regarding emigration from the UK to Australia. You've come out of university, you've graduated, you've had a... Sounds like you've had a brilliant time, so we could probably fill a book with uh, Greg's debauch tales of Northampton. We'll have, we'll have a series of that, mate. We'll have, we'll have like, a podcast series. You know, Watch Greg's, out for my new book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, I don't know, we'll call it Greg's Sessioning or something like that. We'll... We'll... we'll, we'll something a bit snappier than that. Uh, Greg's Gregarious Tales, I think that's what we'll go with. Anyway... Before we go, before we start a complete off show on that one, um, let's talk a little bit about your first forays into social work and sort of bridging that gap between you finish university and you make the decision to go to uh, Australia some years after. So what were your first jobs in social work and how did you find that step crossing over from university into professional life?
0: So I um, began my career as a duty and assessment social worker. Um, yeah, so I was working on the right front end of uh, of the social work profession. Um, and going into the ASYE, oh, that was really scary because it was just this is real now, you know, you've done, you've done your placements, you've yes. done the assignments and now you are now responsible for um, a caseload of, of, of kids for me. Mm-hmm. And I was literally 21 years of age, really <laughs> 21, 22. Mm. And it just felt, I felt like a bit of an imposter, Really,
1: you think that's um, common? Do you think that imposter syndrome is common in social work, or do you think that was just yourself, or do you think other people experience that?
0: I, I think that uh, I think a lot of people um, experience it across yeah. all all ages. Really, I think yeah. for I think for me, um, I had quite a bit of anxiety about almost. Because you're almost like telling people what to do, really, and supporting yeah. them to do the right thing. And I think that can be quite uh, – because I, I don't have children, you know, and that was always the, you know, the one that I was got. well, oh, do you have kids? You know, and you're kind of like going, yeah. no. <laughs> so it's almost – it's quite – you know, they're quite big challenges for, um, you know – young social workers as well you know because you know it's always the life experience that gets thrown at you really what life experience do you have and actually people just don't know you really they don't know where you're from or where you've come from what your experiences are or what your background is but yeah you know very quick to judge as well um but I've said, don't
1: let that stop you as well. <laughs> Just keep going. No, I think if it could be quite cruel, those comments. I mean, I, I do understand why service users, our clients, parents of the children we support in child protection would say those things. I understand that because you're in defence mechanism mode. You are worried about your children. You've perhaps got very negative experiences about social work. If you've had adverse childhood experiences, you've, potentially spend time in care you might have a distrust of professions in general council associations and so on so I certainly do empathize why people would make those comments however Mm. I I do think those comments whilst I understand why people say them I, I do think they can be very intimidating I think they can be very hurtful and I have seen those comments really really harm young, gifted, bright, excellent social workers, because it sometimes feels as if the younger social workers that I work alongside, they're being criticised for things that are totally outside of their control. And mm-hmm. some of the most committed and dedicated social workers, the best social workers I've ever known in my entire life have mm-hmm. been in the early 20s. The dedication, commitment, person-centred practice is, is superb. And I, I wrote an article about this recently for sort of Social Work News magazine um, where, where I spoke about how some social workers, some people within our own profession, and criticise young social workers and those that come from non-traditional roots. And I think it can be very hurtful and very damaging because, as you've said there yourself, Greg... Everybody has a bit of imposter syndrome. God, I did. I I, I couldn't, I, I <laughs> very vividly remember the first day that I was a social worker walking into an office and then just being left by myself and having and, and picking up the phone. I, I also started in this sort of duty and assessment team. It was a, a MASH, a multi-agency safeguarding hub, but you still dealt with initial referrals coming in. And I had this dawning realization. I was like, God, it's just me now, isn't it? There was no one there with me. There was no practice (laughs) educator to go running to. My manager wasn't in the office. There was nobody to look around. There was no book that was going to tell me what to do. I was like, God this is on me, I can't believe I'm suddenly being asked to make judgment calls. And it was hard <laughs> enough as it is. And yet when you have when you have that added pressure that comes from professionals in other fields, our multi-agency colleagues and, and the clients we support who are perhaps criticising you for a lack of experience and, and a perceived lack of life experience on top of already feeling that yourself, that can be quite hurtful, that can be quite difficult to deal with, can't it, Greg?
0: oh absolutely because you're contending with lots of demands and lots of expectations but i think overall i think it's because we care as well i think it's because we want to do a really good job um because we've gone into this you know wanting to you know support you know children families or adults um and you know for me you know this was from the age of 15 16 years of age so it's yeah. kind of like it's a build-up as well so it's almost like oh am I actually going to reach you know my own expectations
1: as well <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know because yeah. you
0: create expectations in your mind thinking oh am, am I going to reach that as well am I going to prove myself right as well that I can do this you know so it's yeah very mixed emotions and I just remember walking into the office and you know it was like uh, I always call it the beehive (laughs) you know because there's just like all loads of desks with the soundproof
1: um thing um the soundproof boards are yeah yeah it is like um, it is like little hexagons <laughs> of a beehive i like it yeah, yeah i'm gonna steal that off your friend i'm gonna pinch yeah. that i said i'm gonna be calling it now the beehive i like it and
0: yeah. um, there's people like talking and on the phone making decisions having mean like real... and from that point i remember my at the time manager coming over just going how are you and i just looked at her going yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because you know, you just feel, you know, it's just all in the moment, and it just felt so surreal as well. Um, but it was just, it was, it was great. And you know i had a really positive experience loads of challenges along the way but a real positive experience um, mm. in my first kind of jump into social work and really quite established myself because I, I stayed in the same local authority until i moved to australia really nice. um, and i really I really did enjoy it
1: brilliant brilliant it's it, i think it's going to be very beneficial for our listeners to hear somebody that's gone on to make the successes you have within your career, to talk about those feelings, because those feelings are normal, aren't they, Greg? Let's put this out there for our listeners. Imposter syndrome is extremely common in social work. Feeling that you aren't good enough is extremely common in social work. Facing criticism for a perceived lack of personal or professional experience from those who perhaps I don't want social workers in their lives or have got a negative view of social workers. Those are all very common issues that we all contend with, aren't they, Greg?
0: Absolutely. And it's... <laughs> It doesn't go away either. There's always going to be peaks and troughs in your career, especially as you're progressing through the tree as well, when you're from an ASYE to, you know, just a social worker to a senior social worker up to practice educator. You kind of always have to always pinch yourself a little bit and and go, oh, am I actually here? Am I actually doing this? Mm. You know, because at every single level that I've been at, there's always been that. Kind of almost second guessing yourself as well all the time, which is healthy. Don't get me wrong, but you kind of almost feel sometimes, can I do this? Yeah, and they are absolutely real feelings. But I would say that they're okay. Yes, as well. I
1: always, I always find there's a difficult fine balance between. Needing to be doubtful of yourself and being too doubtful of yourself, mm. and what I mean by that, Greg, is the most dangerous social work that I've ever seen throughout my career has been overly confident social work. Mm-hmm. Has been social work as being overly confident, either in being too optimistic or too pessimistic, in you know, being so confident that the social worker knows best that they are writing off an entire family, writing off a a parenting assessment in the belief that the social worker knows best and they're not going to look for objective evidence and an evidence base to support their opinions. Equally, on the other side, I've seen equally dangerous social work, for the rule of optimism being applied too much too much trust being placed in what is said rather than what can be evidenced and too much trust placed in a social worker's gut feeling so with with my view being that the most dangerous social work comes from overconfidence I do believe that lacking confidence and doubting yourself has to has to be there we have to second guess ourselves in social work however on the flip side, I think that can go too far because eventually you have to grasp a nettle in social work. We are always going to be dealing with the uncertain we are always going to be dealing with the unknowns so I've always found that, that 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 a little bit a little bit of nervousness as you've described is positive we should be humble we should be questioning ourselves, but you can go too far down that route and I think you can you can overthink and you can mull on things too much. And you can become scared and cowed by it. So it can be a difficult one. How did you manage to move on from those early feelings of not being good enough and those early worries about being an imposter? What helped you to get over them and to go on and thrive in your career?
0: Oh, without a doubt, it's always, I've always gone back to my colleagues and good management, really. So from a very early onset of my career, I always made it important to me to get to know my colleagues and to really, you know, try and work together as a team. Team dynamics are really important, I think. And also to have a real kind of good relationship with your manager, As well, you know, I think that's very real. I think it's really good to feel confident enough to go and ask your manager formally or informally when you're not feeling okay, or whether you want to share something that you feel is really important and being safe to do that as well mm-hmm. um, I think that's really important and I think that puts you kind of in um, good stead to get kind of positive feedback as mm-hmm. well or pointers and just kind of it just makes the team more warm as well you know because if we, we all in social work teams you all go through peaks and troughs where you know some days it can be really crisis driven or that you could get a load of referrals coming in mm-hmm. and what you need from your team is to really really work together as a team to really you know muck through all the work really um, and to support one another in probably really darker times as well mm-hmm. where things are not going so good because that does happen in teams as well you overall you've got to work together because if you don't work together it's just gonna fall apart really so really made it my mission to you know adopt you know good quality um you know relationships within teams really I think that's really key
1: what would you say to people who perhaps aren't lucky enough to have a settled team because I I've worked with many newly qualified social workers who've had five or six managers during their first year in practice and that's not an overstatement like that that is the truth I have worked with newly qualified social workers who have had a a new manager every couple of months during their first year and in particular if we look at the past year a lot of newly qualified social workers haven't had the support of the team because they've been remote working. And I take my hat off and I am in awe of our newly qualified social workers who've come through this past year of homework. And because like you, Greg, if I hadn't have had the support of my more experienced colleagues and my first manager, Becky, was amazing. I I was blessed. My first manager that I had for my first year as a social worker I could not have had a better manager. She was diligent. She was on the ball. She knew the procedures inside out. She was hard work and she believed in me. She pushed me. She was excellent. I couldn't have asked for any more. But I believe that I was quite lucky to have that. So what do you think people can maybe do? How do you think people can maybe help themselves if they're not going to get that help from the team and manager?
0: I think in terms of, you know, if you haven't got that support from your manager, I think, you know, looking at the wider team as well, because I always found, you know, that I made good colleagues in other teams as well. Yes, you know, so yes, it would be happen. not just in my own team, yeah. but also going branching out to other district teams yeah. as well. You know, and really muddling through. You know, the wider kind of structure, really, because yeah. I think sometimes as social workers, you can kind of get locked into your own little hub.
1: Yeah, you really? can. you, can. <laughs> you forget the <there's> other teams <laughs> out there, don't
0: you? You're quite That's a fair point. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But, but as uh, you know. I'm quite bubbly and quite, you know, I'm quite out there, and no. also I'm quite loud as well as a, as an individual. So you can't help but hear me across the <laughs> across the way. Um, so I think it's really important that you go out there and you, you know, talk to your wider social work colleagues as well, yeah. especially those in um, those who are in more um, specialist roles as well um you know whether it would be domestic violence or mental health or csc etc really getting to know them because if you've got cases which are specific in content should we say Mm. then it's really important to get to know them as well and really tap into their knowledge as well um because i've always found people with specialist knowledge have always aided me with my own casework as well. I've never um, been a, a practitioner to be to know it all or I don't, you know, perceive to know it all. I don't want to know it all. You know, I want to learn as much as I can, you know, from different people and people have different skill bases as well and different interests,
1: you know, so you, tapping into that is really key as well. Definitely, well said, my friend. Well said, indeed. Let's talk a little bit about your move to Australia, then. So, um, how did this? How did this start, then? Is it something you'd <laughs> always planned? Like, was it? But tell me, how did how did you end up where you are, my friend? Could you can you no. talk us through the process of how it all started?
0: Oh absolutely. So I um me and my fiance were going to well, really we were going to settle down in, in, in the UK and you know that was it done. <laughs> we're closing up shop, we're done, we're just staying here. Yeah. But then I got a um I thought it was actually spam mail, to be honest, at the beginning. Right. Um, on, on 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 LinkedIn, um, which is a social media app where you put all your job, you know, credentials on, et cetera. Yeah. And the HR actually reached out to me um, from Victoria and said, hey, we're looking for social workers to for our child protection program, come one, come all kind of thing. It was basically just a copy and pasted kind of ad, really. Yeah. And I thought, oh, this is spam. This is not... This can't be real at all. Yeah. So, I, so I messaged back going, oh, is this really legit? Like, is this, like the, <laughs> is this the real deal? <laughs> I like it, I like it. And, and the, the, the lovely lady who was dealing with HR at the time was like, yeah, 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 this is really legit. Like, send us your resume and, you know, we'll... Um, you know, we'll, you know, send you all the application forms and everything like that. So then I sent my um, application um, and my resume, really. Um, Yeah, and I had to, I was like waiting for a couple of months, really, and I didn't hear anything back. And I was like, it was definitely... Spam. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking, yeah. no actual way. But I thought to myself, I'll reach out to a, a, a third party agency. Yeah. Who um, does like recruitment and agency work, and actually recruits overseas as well. So I gave them all my details and everything to go and ask the local government if this was actually legit. Yeah. And uh, about twenty four hours after that, I got an email with an interview which it was at, like, 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I had to be interviewed at 3 o'clock in the morning, and it was just... It was so surreal, because on that particular... On that particular day, I had a crisis come up in my other job. Oh, God. So I didn't, so I didn't finish work that day until probably about 11.30 at night. Um, and I had this interview um at three o'clock and I remember my um my fiance saying are you gonna be okay to do this I was like yeah I'll be fine I can I'll muddle through this yeah yeah um and I remember him like waking me up uh, in the middle of the night and I'm like oh no I can't
1: do this Jeez, wow. <laughs> he was like get up <laughs> wow
0: And I remember, like, getting myself ready and I had, like, you know, a nice shirt on, but I was in my pyjama short, my (laughs) (laughs) pyjama It was what? so funny because I don't had to do, you know, put my hair right, and oh, it was just so funny. I was, I don't even know how I got through the interview, um, really. And I can't, it, when I look back on it, I can't even remember, remember the questions that they asked me, all my responses.
1: <laughs> so just, just take it back a step, Greg. Then, um, did you, had you ever considered? Working abroad before you'd seen that approach, or was this totally out of the blue? Would you given any thought to working abroad, or was this just was this just something you thought of when you got the offer?
0: Um, so my um, my partner, and my fiance is from abroad, yeah. and I, it was always something that I wanted to do what he had already done. Um, so he was kind of my he was my inspiration really because I wanted to um, be able to do that with him and I know that he wanted to as well and uh, Australia is always that place and especially uh, as, a, as, a, as a Brit you kind of look at Australia and go wow you know would really like to live there um, so yeah I, before I never really have Given it like real loads of thought. I just really took the leap of faith really and thought to myself, look, I've got, I've got to do it now. I'm young, I'm fit, I'm healthy. I've got to do it now. Cause if I don't, I'll probably regret it in the future. Yeah. And I didn't want to regret.
1: It's, it's amazing, isn't it? How life can take us in so many different ways based on spur of the moment decisions. And, when those things come our way, we've got to decide whether we accept it as a green light and go, or we accept it as a red light and stop and not take it forward. And that decision's taken your life. Not only is it taking you to waking up at three in the morning and, uh, to undertaking <laughs> interviews with a shirt on that pants under the and not even remember the interview. Um, not only is it giving you that story, which has certainly amused me, my friend, It, of course it has taken you in this completely different direction. So how long was it between having the interview and getting the job offer and then putting your notice and then moving out? How does it work when you get a job offer from a completely different country? Because obviously I'm very used to moving positions in this country, moving from one social work position to another, getting your CVs in, getting your criminal record history checked, getting your two references, doing your basic stuff like car insurance, that's, pretty straightforward (laughs) when you're moving from county to county in the united kingdom i imagine it is a little bit more complex when you are moving to the other side of the world
0: yeah absolutely like when um so it took about oh it must have been about like two or three months after the interview that i heard back that i had actually um, been successful within the within the interview, and they're actually going to offer me a position. And that was quite a long time because I yeah, honestly...
1: that's a hell of a long time. Usually, you hear mm-hmm. back within a
0: couple of days. Mm-hmm. And that's what I um, honestly believed that what was going to happen,
1: but no, did not hear back until months, uh, a couple of months afterwards. So did you sort of given up on the opportunity by that point then? Had you sort of written it off or, or did you know that it could have taken that long?
0: Um, I kind of thought what will be will be. Yeah. Um, at that time in my life, in that time in my life, I had a very, very busy caseload
1: yeah.
0: as well. So I was very, very, very busy with... Um, lots of you know different things and also i was in mash for a while as well um so you can imagine you know that the work and the job just seems to take you and you know you lose days weeks months years of your life at a time And, and before i knew it i was there was this congratulations email in my inbox and going hey you've got a position um and it's there's a visa uh, attached to it and i remember getting a phone call um of you know of the hr almost wanting to go through the process with me and how to get my visa as well nice. um because that was something that was really um integral to have. I'd never done visas before. I had no yeah. idea what it entailed either. I, you know, had never lodged a visa in, yeah. in my life. Um, so it, it was completely new to me. And I remember going to, uh, you know, loads of different meetings uh, with immigration agents, reading articles, websites, um Frequently Asked Questions, How To <laughs> website and just trying to lodge all, get all my evidence together and then lodge. But an absolute nightmare trying to get like letters and your pay yeah. and and um, just your, your work history as well. It's just, they, they wanted to know everything about me as well. Everywhere I've had-
1: been. I- had that time in between given you any sort of pause to thought and reconsider or when you got the offer were you like yes this is definitely what I'm going to do because like I say it's quite unusual to have such a gap between the interview and the offer Or so were you, did you give pause to reconsider or when the offer came in were you just yes, yes this is what you definitely wanted to do
0: I think we both give consideration because it is so far away yeah. as well like uh, I think our I remember when um I told our, our families and you know it was almost like it's not like a a two hour plane trip it's literally 24 hours yeah. away and it was just me and my fiance, you know so we'd be away from you know our families and our, yeah. our support network really and, and our friends as well so we had to give a lot of consideration um how that was all going to work as well and the challenges that we're going to face um along the way and I think that was kind of the biggest challenge really is to not not let go but almost like you know you have to put your own life first
1: yeah 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 yeah. you
0: know and what you would like in your life and at this time in my life it was to travel abroad and to do something that you know I might not be able to do again yes
1: yes definitely
0: so that was something that I really wanted to do for me and, um, and my partner I really wanted to do it at the time as well. But there's almost there's always that nervousness. Uh, and actually, I still, you know, I still get it now, you know, of, you know, did you make the right decision? You know, should we go back? You, you always have those feelings, mm. really, and they never seem to go away. But it always depends on the on the situation, really, or what's going on in your life at the time.
1: And that's human nature. We, we are biologically programmed to be constantly checking out our environments, and we are driven to some extent by that fight-or-flight Instinct, uh, So it's always normal, I think, to, to second guess. God forbid, my friend, I sometimes look back at things I did 25 years ago and think, hmm, did I make the right decision then? That's human nature. Oh, that's human nature. Um, what were your first few days like? Was it a culture shock when you landed? What Because... Obviously, you've gone through quite a procedural process. You've gone for the interview, you've waited some months, you've been incredibly busy at work. You've then did all the paperwork, the procedures. What was it like when you stepped off that plane and you were like, God, we're here? How how was that? How, how did those first few days play out when you actually made it to Australia?
0: Well, it, it was just so scary, you know, because you're in a country, you yeah. don't have really anything to your name either yeah. like we only had we we only packed up our clothes
1: really. <laughs> wow. like we
0: didn't bring we didn't bring any anything else so it was we like just...
1: you've got a holiday basically pack yeah. for a holiday.
0: <laughs> <laughs> going on for a long long holiday yeah. <laughs> but we just came out we just came out and we were just it was like night time and the my my job had got us a, like a taxi to take us into melbourne yeah um and it was just so surreal and melbourne is really beautiful yeah. as well you know it's a
1: beautiful place did, did they have a home lined up for you how did housing work did they put you in a hotel did you find your own accommodation how did the, the sort of practical sides of where you lived where play so, out
0: so we stayed in our hotel for our first night, and then I, we had to get um, like an Airbnb yeah. um, for for a few weeks. So we were about we were in there for about two to three weeks um so we had to really like a home hunting as well in those two to three weeks as well but uh, you know we didn't have a we didn't have a like a home or a car or anything so we had Jeez. to really build from yeah, the ground yeah. up as well um and it was just really scary you know because you know everything that you kind of like Taken for granted, you know, oh, you just get into your car and you drive and you know, you get what you need. Well, we couldn't do that. We had to, you know, go into an Airbnb and then we mm. had to go all by on foot and get the car and build basically build bridges, yeah. really. Um, and it was just really and then I'm going into this new job in like three three weeks time.
1: <laughs> How and that was just how do you think you would have managed if you'd have been doing it by yourself? How much easier or harder? You might not listen to the show. If you, if you made it more difficult, you may tell me, my friend. We can edit this bit out. We'll do a redacted version, see if he wants to listen. Um, but seriously, I imagine you made it a lot a lot easier. Uh, how, how do you think you would have found those first couple of weeks if you'd have had to do it by yourself?
0: I think it would have been really overwhelming, yeah. I think that coming to a different country is very overwhelming in general yeah. um because it, it is very it is very different you know um from everything that you that you know as yeah. well or everything that you um, that you were or it, it just changes, you know and yeah the cultural context of everything changes as well you know so i think it's really hard to kind of like find your feet and it did take me a while to find me to find my feet as well
1: Were there any culture shocks in the first few weeks you were there, things that took you aback that were significantly different? Because I've got to be honest with you, my friend, I, I know very little about Australia, despite the fact that you know I'm blessed to interact with you know many thousands of social workers from Australia who who get in touch and listen to the show and interact with me online and so on. My cultural understanding of australia is probably limited to when i used to watch the soap neighbors avidly every afternoon after school because i had a crush on holly valance i'm not gonna lie that was the only reason i used to watch it because holly valance used to play a character called flick and i would eagerly await it coming on when i was a teenage boy so aside from uh, what i know about uh, australia through holly valance and harold and marge on neighbors and Toddy, i used to like toady he was a good character i'm gonna bar everyone <laughs> with my like, obsession with neighbors mid to late 90s i couldn't tell you about anything to do with neighbors now but yeah about you know 25 or 26 years ago i could tell you anything about neighbors um with my cultural knowledge being so limited How did you find those first couple of weeks? Were there any cultural shocks? Were there any massive differences? How did you acclimatise to suddenly being asked to live in a whole different country?
0: Um, I think, you know, it's obviously without, you know, I think... For us, it's obviously very, very difficult, you know, because obviously Britain has a very not-so-good history with Australia, Um, and obviously there is a wide Aboriginal culture uh, culture here. Yes. And, you know, I think that I didn't know a particular lot about Aboriginal culture or Torres Strait Islander culture either. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, in terms of like cultural competence, I had to really kind of strip back and um, going real back to basics of reading and re- researching, because you know our history with Australia is not is not the best either. And I think it's really it was really important for me from the outset to acknowledge that as well. But I think that you know, I had really good colleagues as well, and I made some really good friends because there's actually quite a lot of Brits here in in Australia, especially in the line of work that we do, um, and they made the the link much more easier um of you know that teaching and that learning as well and you know obviously there was a lot of different procedural differences as well but also a lot of cultural differences as well um, which I had Mm -hmm. to be very mindful about and I think that kind of really does um you know it was probably the first time that I've ever felt like being an outsider, you know, Uh, so that, that, that feeling to me was very, um, was very different, you know, Um, and I just thought, wow, I actually feel like an outsider, you know, for, for a couple of months and, Mm. you know, things are, are very different and, you know, how am I going to find my way? And I think that was just part and parcel of learning as well, really. And understanding the culture and understanding, you know, the, the people in the community that live here as well. Um, yeah, I think that was really important for me to know. And to be honest, I kind of ask a lot of questions as well. Um, so I was very intrigued to know about the, the, the cultural dynamics here and what that looked like so there's an oh, wow.
1: interesting symmetry there because we, we spent some time talking about imposter syndrome as you started your social work career and then you've gone and you've sort of experienced that again to a certain extent but you've obviously worked hard to ingratiate yourself with the culture to ask questions and of course you've had that support too tell me about the the practical side of things again how, how do you How do you start being a social worker in a different country? So you've had a couple of weeks, you've been house hunting, you've been sort of getting acclimatised and so on. How does your job start then? What are the first couple of weeks in your job? Do you have sort of acclimatisation sessions? Do you have training? Uh, Are there other British people who are starting the same time as you? Tell me a, a little bit about the first couple of weeks when you're actually starting your new role as a social worker in Australia.
0: It's really it's really interesting. So the role that I was, I was going for a child protection role. So I just really went from child protection in the UK to child protection in Australia. And I remember speaking to some of my colleagues and I like introduce myself and they were like oh so what's your education background and I remember them saying oh, I remember saying oh social work and then I asked my colleague um what their background was because we're both child protection workers and they were like psychology and I was like my my head kind of twitched a little bit and I kind of looked at them and I was like psychology what do you mean, psychology? And I was like, yeah, I did a psychology degree, and that's how I landed this job. And then I went back a little bit, and then I asked other colleagues like what their education background was. And there was like welfare courses, there was yeah. uh, child development courses. They they there was a diverse range of child protection workers. Uh, they they all were not social workers. They were all,
1: ah, different, all right. different
0: education backgrounds. Yeah, yeah, and that was very interesting for me at the start because I was like, "So child protection is a social work job." That's the first thing that you think. Yeah. and but where I where I'm living is that they've really branched it out to. All different kinds of discipline, disciplines, really. So it makes it really interesting, um, interesting learning, you know, from when you're having conversations about families and what perspectives they're actually, yes. you know, talking from as well. So that's very interesting. Um, and I now remember going on to my, they call it beginning practice training, where I've been doing it for six years I was gonna say beginning so how,
1: how did that feel beginning like being put onto a course called beginning practice when you you know you you, you come and if you look at the average career of a social worker in child protection is about six seven years you mm. kind of come into the end of your shelf life is statistically <laughs> what was that like being put on a course called beginning practice that was really intriguing because all all
0: my Cohort, all my colleagues who were in this beginning practice were all from overseas as
1: well. Ah, right. Were right. so, so other people, had other people been similarly approached by somebody out of the blue and poached from yes. their countries? Yes. Is, that, is that what happened? <laughs> yes. We were in a room full of people who had all been sold this scar, but like, oh, God, it's real now. <laughs> is, that, is that what happened?
0: It's so interesting. Like, it was just amazing. There was just all these people from all over the world in one room, We'd all been social work trained in different countries. And what an amazing experience. There was a wealth of knowledge in the room. Ages, you know, ages, stages, gender, you know, there were just those all, everyone was from different backgrounds. And it was just an amazing experience and conversations that we had. Because even though we were doing beginning practice, there was a lot of kind of procedural um, discussions really and that actually did spark a lot of interesting conversations because all we've all had our own previous experiences of child protection and worked in Um, different frameworks Mm -hmm. and so to hear um, another framework we were kind of you know there was kind of like you know arguments back and forth and criticism back and forth and constructive criticism Ah. and it was just it was really interesting you know to you know sit back and, and and listen to everyone's kind of what they've been exposed to within their career thus far. It was just, you know, it was a fantastic... I think it was about three weeks. Yeah. And it was just a great training, you know, fantastic. You know, not just to learn, but to meet people as well.
1: No, Dev, I mean, again, what what an experience. You, you You couldn't have got an experience like that any other way to have that detailed insight into practice, not only... Comparing your own experience in the UK to that which you were learning in Australia, but also to have been put in with a group of people who are coming from other places too. Like that's that's invaluable, mate. That that is is so rare and, and and so unique to have that. Thinking about the difference between the UK and Australia, then. When I've spoken to social workers from Australia. The differences don't seem to be too big. Um, There are different ways in which assessments may be undertaken. Uh, The teams are made up slightly differently, but generally speaking, the referral assessment interview process is quite similar. And the social work cycle of assessment, intervention and review is also quite similar. And then teams are set up in a similar way. If I got the right of it there, my friend, or is it a bit more complex? Are there are more differences than I am aware of between the UK and Australia?
0: I think there are a, a few more differences, really, and there are some there are some real good things, and then there are some I not so good things, and they are all my kind of like personal view. Yeah. Um the one thing that australia does really adopt um very well is their family group conference kind of model yeah really that that model of let's get the family um you know making their own
1: yes. kind of plan
0: really and not us imposing it on them but doing it yeah. with them as well and that's kind of like at the end of an assessment if you are going to be intervening in a kind of voluntary capacity yes then there is that kind of you know making sure that you get all the family involved that would be the parents grandparents aunts uncles and getting everyone round the table and it's actually a standard procedure
1: to do that, as well. ah, so oh, so obviously in, in the fan group conference models, which I've used, uh, you know, just just to say right from the start, I think they're amazing. I think I think you are far more likely to get a realistic long term intervention if it comes from a family than coming from professional. But obviously, me and you have come from a model, and I'm still in the model. Whereas family group conferencing generally tends to be at the social worker's discretion, whether they think that is necessary. It's not used on most cases, it's only used on a small percentage. Are you saying in Australia, the culture is such and the procedural structure is such that more or less every case has a family group conference? Is that, is that kind of what it is over there?
0: Yeah yeah absolutely Um, and I think it's you know like you say you do get the better outcomes by you know actually involving the family and then because they have incentive to make their own plans and actually want it to want it to work as well. Um, Some um, of, of the other good things that are really good about Australia is that there's not a kind of lengthy assessment kind of process as well you know in the sense of you know you have to write a you know a a 20 page document a single assessment per se. so there is no kind of assessment in that kind of format
1: how does it work then so when when you intervene so say you get a referral through for domestic abuse um Mm -hmm. what what will you write about that how will this sort of outcome of your views and your professional analysis how will that be recorded
0: so that's interesting so there's actually here in this particular state mm-hmm. there's actually um we have to make an assessment on who is responsible for harm quote unquote
1: ah tell me more about that that's really interesting so,
0: so what that kind of looks like is that, so child protection here can only intervene with a family for 90 days
1: right. in a voluntary
0: capacity. Right. And at the end of an investigation, there has to be a like a rationale or yeah. substantiation of the concerns. And you have to almost pinpoint who has caused harm, whether it be the mother, the father, wow. the parent, or um, somebody else. Yeah. And actually, that is actually recorded then as a responsible for harm. And they've got this, like, little, like, red flag then. That... Yeah, yeah. But... <laughs> and right. then then you can proceed into, like, voluntary kind of intervention afterwards to do your family group conference, really.
1: So that's, 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 I've never heard the likes of that before. Obviously, you know, you'll know here in the UK, mate, that we, you know, you have warning flags and you put warning flags on the system. So whether you're using liquid logic, mosaic, LCS, anything like that, um, care first, any of the systems, you've always got the ability to put a warning flag and a hazard against people. But to have a whole assessment process predicated around, labeling somebody as responsible for harm how did how did how did you manage to change to such an approach how did you find that
0: That was really hard for me. I found it really, really hard because I would do a holistic assessment based on need. And I still do, you know, still do that. I still encompass that and still encourage it now with my colleagues to do an assessment based on need. However, it's a given that you have to, you know, encompass someone in a responsible for harm to a child or young person. And that's really difficult because we all know that there are reasons or, you know, circumstances that have happened within um, a person's life that has, you know, caused harm or likely to cause harm, but never sometimes intentional either, Um, which is almost like very difficult so it was really hard actually yeah. it was really really hard to, that was a really big um professional culture shock to me
1: and i because i i in in this country and in my training and in my approach to social work it is always good people do bad things and you avoid wherever at all possible labelling a parent as having done harm because you try and temper that accusation. And and even even when you're in a child protection conference for the first time and you have to make a decision about whether a child's uh, being subject to a child protection plan for neglect, physical abuse, sexual abuse or emotional abuse... You even try and temper those words, don't you? So you'll say to a parent, look, I know you're going to come out with a plan here that says you've neglected your children and it's very difficult for you to hear that, but this is kind of is the sister we we've got to give labels to it, it's not great. So you, you're always trying to soften that blow. So coming from an approach that always tries to, always tries to soften that blow and minimise the impact of those labels which are ascribed to parents that we support how how do parents react to being labeled as such as responsible for harm? how have you found that comes across when you have to share that with an adult how how, how does that work what, what's the reaction to that?
0: I think you know it all it depends on the worker you yes. know it really sits with the worker of how they present that information as well. Um, because I think, you know, you want to be open and honest and Mm. to be open and honest about the system and how it works as well. Um, But I think it's a way, it's how you go about it as well and how, what the rapport that you have with your family as well and, and, and the kids within that as well, because I feel like if they trust you enough, as well, and have rapport with you, then that's kind of like your first kind of post, really, for them to make meaningful change. There are some families, you know, that are generally quite upset by it, and obviously they are worried about... About how it's going to impact on, you know, their livelihood and their job as well, um, because it is a recorded system as yeah. well. And I do totally, you know, empathize with 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 that approach as well. You know, especially for family members. You know, but I think overall it is really about how one approaches approaches the
1: the exactly.
0: the, the news, really.
1: Yeah. And it's, look, it's, it's the same, it's the same in the UK, as you'll know, my friend, you you get some social workers who will take the system and use it with a punitive approach to families, your kids are on a child protection plan for neglect and really go down that, that, that hammer and anvil kind of route, that very strict and stringent approach and you get other social workers who work within the exact same system who will say, look, you know, your kids have got to be on a child protection plan for neglect. There's nothing I can do about that. That's the statutory plans we've got to follow. Let's try and move beyond those words, and let's try and make meaningful action. I know you want to get better. I know we want to improve the situation. It's not me versus you. It's me and you versus the problem and taking that approach. So it's really interesting that you've said that despite that potentially punitive approach which is well we need to find somebody who's responsible for this rather than saying this has happened let's deal with it somebody has to be blamed you can still approach that in an open way and that in itself cannot be it uh, cannot be you know burning down bridges on its own um Let's talk about things practically in terms of wages and work-life balance because our listeners who may be tempted to do this may be initially <laughs> thinking, Yeah, sounds good. I want to be approached. Come on, come on, HR lady from Victoria. You, you're crossing <laughs> the fingers. I hope I get this approach, this random approach <laughs> online. Um, what's the work-life balance like, mate? And what are the wages like? How have you found the wages and work-life balance to differ from your past experience in England.
0: So my, my my work-life balance is definitely a lot better. Like absolutely, like I I go to work. I yeah. do not. I do nine to
1: five.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there are always exceptions to that rule yeah. as well um where um you know you're working late because there's the, something that's happened and you need to, it needs an urgent response yeah you know and rightly so um but there is always that um you know your manager's coming around why are you still
1: here Go. oh wow <laughs> so, I'm the opposite. I'm getting managers bringing me up saying, Why are you are not here? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I like, no, to be fair, actually, I better. My current manager is absolutely lovely. I'm very lucky where I live, but yeah, let's get it right. It is, it is more of the other culture. <laughs> That's good, man. That's good.
0: Yeah, and then, so they just come around and say, look, go home, or if we're working from home, it's, are, are you done? You know, we get that, nice. <laughs> you know, that pop-up going, are you done? You need nice. to go offline. So that's really, you know, that's good, uh, I, I think, as well. In, in terms of, um, you know, if you do work overtime as well, you get paid overtime.
1: Whoa, you know, so- whoa, hang on. <laughs> paid overtime in social work. Uh-huh. wow how what, what was that like and um, pay for your overtime I, I was like so someone said to me
0: um uh when i did overtime once there was like have you done your overtime form i was like what <laughs> 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 what yeah, yeah. <laughs> what's overtime <laughs> wow yeah. Yeah, you got to do your overtime form. This was when I was in supervision. I was like, my overtime form. I haven't done my overtime form. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't done an overtime form for years.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Wow. And uh, wages, how do the wages differ between um, doing your job there and what you were um, earning in England?
0: They're uh, a lot better. Um, So it's essentially double um what you get in the uk wow given so it's potentially double yeah.
1: so in terms of um uh, just a ballpark figure in terms of what your current wage would be in pounds what would your current wage be if it was um if it was uh, if it was in pounds
0: uh
1: it's around about fifty eight so thousand. you look so in that so you're looking at sort of service manager level if you're looking, yep. God, when, and and what? Why, why is that? Are Wages in Australia generally higher. Is social work seen as a more worthy profession? Is it all the overtime you're putting in, mate? Which which one is it? Why? <laughs> is is it, why 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 is there such difference in terms of the wages? I think. I think. He, first off, I think yeah,
0: the, it's the resource. It's the resources. Yeah. You know, so there's a lot more resources here in Australia to tap into, um, and also I think you know Australia does value its child protection workforce yeah. as well, in the sense of how um, the vicarious trauma that we can you know you know get you know within our job as yeah. well um and is rewarded for that as well and i think as well you know the cost of living here in australia is is significantly higher yeah. as well than back at home you know so just in general kind of you know you know general senses you know food shops clothes are very expensive as well so that has to be reflected within the wages as well But overall, the general kind of wage is so much better. And, you know, I think they do have more resources here as well. Um, And you can even see that within their service provisions as well.
1: Nice, because Australia is doing quite well as a country, isn't it, in terms of, you know, how affluent it is. It's really been on the up over the past couple of decades. I mean, it's it's always been, you know, in the context of the the entire world, quite an affluent country, but I think more recently. Um, so with your paid overtime, with your better work-life balance, with your wage which is uh, double what what I social workers would be getting in this country um, have you any intentions to come home my friend? No. <laughs> I can't, I'm stuck I <laughs> you can't, you're stuck. So do you think you'll settle? You, I mean, how, how does your visa work in terms of practicality? Because obviously I, I know very little about this But, you know, c- can you stay in Australia indefinitely? Do you have to renew the visa? Can you get citizenship if you wanted to? How does all that practical side work In terms of you being able to stay and work uh, And with your fiancé long term? How does that work?
0: So we're currently on um, like a medium term visa Mm -hmm. Um, and after you, have on our particular visa, after three years, we can apply for our residency, which we are in the process of doing, which will give us, which will allow us to, um, stay here indefinitely um but i have to get my social work credentials um assessed which is going ahead as well by the australian association of social workers as well so they're there's kind of like the equivalent of social work england yeah really, and they do all the assessments on on social workers as well and that really does play a part um in getting your um getting your residency essentially but it's a long kind of process as well it's not it's not a couple of weeks or a couple of months we've been doing it for probably the last six seven months and we're probably still very much at the beginning of that process so it is long and it is you know it is it's difficult. It is difficult because they want all the information that you had for your your previous visa and more
1: yeah. on top
0: of it. So, yeah, that, that, that's a lot. It's a lot to care to contend with, really. And after you've done a long day's work, the last thing that you want to be doing is (laughs) writing documents for your visa.
1: (laughs) Oh, I know. It's it's awful, isn't it, in social work? Because you spend all your day doing paperwork and if you've got to come home and even do something so basic as do like a a form to renew your passport, or driving licence, you can just be burned out by so many different (laughs) referral forms. And I think with Australia as well, I, I think I'm right in thinking that Australia has one of the most strict immigration policies in the entire world so i imagine that makes it uh, that makes it even more difficult to contend with how's your fiance found it all then obviously we've spoken about you quite rightly but how's how's he liked it is he happy with the decision is he willing to stay there you know, um, are things working out for you guys as a couple and as a family too
0: absolutely he's loving it he's nice. having a right oh, he's having a right ball you know <laughs> my 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 fiance um you know he 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 works from home with covid yeah. or not so he he's really loving it and he's got he just loves the country and nice. I, I, he he's from he's from poland so he he has his he's been from his country to england and now he's here in australia so he's had like a really wide breadth yeah. of you know of exposure really to you know different parts of the world um, which is which is fantastic, and he's absolutely loving it here. And I think he, as long as he's happy, I'm happy as well.
1: <laughs> nice, and, I, and I'm happy too, my friend. I'm happy for you both. Um, well, I am. Uh, I'm going to have a very difficult conversation with my wife and two young children about the fact that, that Daddy is going to live with his friend Greg in Australia, um, and I will, I'll I'll send them back a thousand pound a month with my enhanced wages. <laughs> to tide them over. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I'll see you soon, my friend. Um, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to have that conversation. No? I'd be struck up. I'd be, struggle, I'd be by the apple tree in the garden. I wouldn't even dare joke about such things. Um, Greg, my friend, it has been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. It's most definitely been worth the wait um i'd love to have you back on we we would like to have you back on the show can we can we get you back on for an update sometime my friend will you keep us in the loop regarding your application for residency and a long-term visa
0: absolutely absolutely it's been a pleasure
1: no my friend the pleasure has been all mine it has definitely been worth this this long slow seduction i have engaged you in to get you on this show <laughs> Over oh, for the best part of two and a half years it is finally paid <laughs> off my friend so thank you ever so much it's been a pleasure thank you Well, listeners, thank you ever so much for listening. Um, That was Greg, who's joined us from Australia. Like I say, I'm going to get him back on the show. Maybe that he's back on the show coming to me via Zoom or it may be that I'm in Australia in a couple of months' time. Who knows, Greg? Who knows? Let's see. Let's see, Let's see how my wife and children respond to the news with tears, I imagine. My five-year-old daughter question, why. Why daddy's running off to live with a man that he met on the internet. I don't oh, know. Yeah, I Yeah. I, I don't want to go to school having that conversation with the teacher early next week. All well, that, love listeners, as always, thank you ever so much for your support, your subscriptions, your likes. As always, it would be... A a real benefit to the show if you would consider leaving a review on itunes or any other platform that you listen to us on until then it is goodbye from me